Well, good morning. We're back in the book of Romans again, and we're picking up where we left off before the holidays uh, here in Romans five. Excuse me, Romans four. Um, we are actually not going to make it all the way through Romans four today. I know that's a shocker. Um, I thought about it, uh, was prepared for it, but um, I think that it's worth slowing down just a little bit and considering the first part of this chapter as, as really central to uh, the gospel and uh, to the message of the book of Romans. Um, we're really at the heart of the epistle. We're really at the heart of Paul's argument. He began by, by, by opening with that, with that glorious kind of all-encompassing thesis um, that um, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. And this is where he gets to the heart of what that statement means uh, here in Romans 4. And and I would say that Romans 3 and 4, or maybe um, the end of 3 all the way through 5, are, are really some of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. Because it so clear, clearly lays out for us our blessing and righteousness and justification that we have um, in the gospel. And so, in that respect, justification by faith does take center stage for us here in this section. And um, it's here, I believe, as well, that as we will see, the heart of the Protestant Reformation and the difference and the distinction between the gospel of Roman Catholicism and the gospel of the Protestant Reformers uh, that contrast and distinction is clear and it's seen. And uh, as I think you'll see as well, this has continuing ramifications in our day, even as the Roman Catholic Church does not enjoy the prominence that it once did, or it did in the time of the Reformation. But there's two basic things that we'll see here. Oh, excuse me, I'm not there yet. Just remember chapter 3, where we came from, the universal sinfulness of humanity. Paul nailed that down. He supported that with uh, passages from the Old Testament. Uh, he, he put forth the argument that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. Uh, but then that, came, that led to the transition in 3.21. The righteousness of God has now been revealed in Christ. And it is received by faith alone. And that righteousness can come to us because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This is how God is the just. He upholds His righteousness. And yet is also the justifier. He forgives those who are unrighteous because or through faith in Christ. That propitiation, that life and that death become ours received by faith. And this, as Paul concludes, it both excludes boasting. We can't say that we're better than other people, that we are righteous, because we're receiving a righteousness that's not ours. It excludes boasting, but it also upholds the validity and the purpose of the law of God. And so, with that kind of Put forth at the end of chapter three, uh, chapter three. Now, today, in chapter four, um, Paul appeals or he makes 
two illustrations. He's expounding upon what he argued in chapter 3. He calls two witnesses, David and Abraham, or I should say Abraham and David. (laughs) First Abraham and then David, and then back to Abraham even more. And in that respect, we see two things today. So uh, our basic outline, we'll cover the first 12 verses. Um, We're going to see the forensic nature of uh, justification. And he makes that point appealing to Abraham and David. And then we're going to see the purpose of circumcision, or should say uh, the purpose of, of God's dealing with Abraham as he seeks to kind of explain the Jew-Gentile relation, what God was doing in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament is connected to what is revealed in the New Testament in Christ. And so um, that will kind of serve as our outline in this respect today. Uh, So turn with me to uh, Romans 4. And, um, whoops, that says Romans 3.21. That's not right. Um, Romans 4, 1 through 8 is what we'll begin with. So... um, Can I ask for a volunteer to read Romans 4, 1 through 8 for us, loud and clear? Mark, thank you. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Well, what does Amen. Thank you. Um, Remember here some of the big question, uh, pressing questions of this book. Um, What are God's purposes with the Jews? And with the law? And with the promises? That's kind of a big deal. It's a big deal because God first revealed Himself to the nation of Israel. It's a big deal because the Old Testament um, is, you know, 75% of our Bible. It's a big deal because Paul himself, a Jew, is writing to a largely Gentile church. You know, what was for a previously a Jewish religion that Gentiles were not interested in, that Gentiles were not essentially included in, specifically... Now this church pops up. Now the Holy Spirit is working among the Gentiles. And it raises all of these questions about God's purposes with them. And how that relates to what's been revealed in Christ. That's kind of a, the big issue that he comes back to again and again. And we're going to you know, come back to this all the way through Romans 11, really. And then again in Romans uh, 16. Um, so, some of the big questions. What are God's purposes with Jews? Why have only a small remnant of God's chosen people believed in their Messiah? Is this gospel that you're teaching me, 
preaching to me, Paul, different from the way of salvation in the Old Testament. And so, this is where Paul at least begins to answer this question in some respect. And he begins by, okay, what's so special about Abraham? How was he saved? How does this relate to the Gentile inclusion in the way of salvation for Gentiles? And, of course, David is brought in for evidence as well, even though primarily he focuses on Abraham. So, so this is the background of what he's trying to answer here, he's, he's dealing with. And, and what we see is he, he nails down the, the, the nature of justification, being forensic. And he makes the argument that justification is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. The way of salvation hasn't changed. And he seeks to prove that not just upon what I'm telling you as the Apostle, but he seeks to prove that from the Old Testament itself. Let me take you back to the Scriptures. Let me take you back to what God has already revealed, and I will show that to you, is essentially what he's doing. So, uh, in this respect, he begins, "What What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Or what's so special about him? What was gained about uh, uh, gained by Abraham, our patriarch? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And remember, that's, that's one of his key points, is that the nature of the gospel excludes all boasting. Well, That can't be true if Abraham gained his salvation by works, because then he would have something to boast about. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God didn't look down on Abraham and say, here is a righteous one, and so I'm going to bless him. Rather, It is when he believed that this righteousness was counted to him. Abraham cannot boast. Again, that's a big deal. That's part of his larger argument. It excludes boasting. Even our forefather, even our patriarch cannot boast. And and what this teaches us is what we call forensic justification, or the forensic nature of justification. Um, who can define this? Or who can kind of explain what, what is meant by the word forensic? This is really important. Uh, Chandler? Precisely. Precisely. Forensic is legal courtroom language. Did you read my slides, man? Come on. That's what the term forensic is getting at. Um, It is a legal declaration. It is a verdict in the courtroom of justice, in the courtroom of God's justice. You know, I have a picture of the gavel here. When it slams down, that's it, right? Whatever the judge says right when he slams that down is it. 
right? The, you know, the defendant is acquitted. Boom. The defendant is found guilty. Boom. He is sentenced to however many years or this or that. Boom. Forensic is that declaration. That's what the term is getting at here. The courtroom of God's justice. And so Paul's argument here is that Abraham was legally declared in the courtroom of God's justice as righteous. And that's very, 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 very critical, import, critically important to understanding the nature of the gospel and how we receive the blessing of God, how we are made right with God. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. Um, so here, um, let's get at the heart of, of the Protestant Reformation and the distinction between what is taught by the Roman Catholic Church and which the Protestant Reformers opposed on the basis of passages like Romans 4. Um, you know, it's noteworthy. Rome will agree with us all day long when we say justification by faith. That's great. Yeah, of course we're saved by faith. Who can deny that? Right? Rome doesn't deny justification by faith, at least on the surface of things. Of course, if you press them justification by faith alone, that's where a distinction will come because they don't believe that faith truly is alone. But ultimately, they deny the forensic aspect of justification. So really, in that sense, they deny justification by faith. It's at this forensic legal declaration where, where, where we depart from Roman Catholicism, or vice versa. Um, so with Rome, justification is an internal process rather than a forensic act. You, you understand the difference there? A legal declaration versus a process that begins and leads to completion, hopefully. Reformed, it is judicial, it is once for all. With Rome, justification is something that's spread out over your lifetime. It doesn't happen all at once. Um, with Rome, you have an infused righteousness, where as the Reformed, you have an imputed righteousness. What, is, um, what do they mean by infused righteousness? Yes, exactly. Think of, um, um, I, I don't know, think of um, the COVID vaccine, right? <laughs> you get vaccinated and it, it comes, it's actually in your body. And uh, I know there's all these theories, does it change your DNA? Does it change, you know, uh, <laughs> um, some of the, the, the discussions nowadays. But, but th- there's something that comes in you from the outside and actually becomes a part of you. That's infused. Versus imputed is that legal declaration that's it's kind of a, you know, a credit to your bank account, maybe, put it, to put it that way. So um, with Rome, you have baptism gets you going. It puts you in that 
covenantal or that, that, that it washes away original sin so that it puts you in that context to where now you can begin with a little grace here and a little merit there and more sacraments, you eventually become righteous. It, not declared righteous, no. You can only be declared righteous at the final judgment. Which typically comes, unless you're a pope or a saint, it comes after purgatory. That's the last step of burning off the rest of your remaining sins. So you have a little bit of Christ's merit. You have the merit of the saints and Mary. Uh, You have your own merit. And, and this is how you progressively become righteous in Rome's system. And that's why also the Lord's Supper for them is very, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation is very important. That is the actual body and blood of Christ. And that actually is the body and blood of, blood of Christ. Like physically, really, actually. And so that actually goes in your stomach and becomes part of you. Your, your body, you know, I don't know the term for it, but your body digests it and it, you know, becomes who you are. So that actual righteousness in you begins to make you actually righteous. And that is how you are justified. That is their gospel. Paul here is making the point. Abraham was counted, he was declared righteous by faith. And he's pointing to an act that was done, not a process that began. He was, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He didn't have to wait. Till the last day. That's why we often talk when we talk about justification. You'll hear, you hear me say sometimes that our justification, our declaration of righteous, forgiven, receiving all the blessings of God is given to us now. It is the verdict of the final judgment brought into this age, here and now, and given to us right now, today. We don't have to wonder what that final verdict will be. Because it's already been given to us. That's the forensic nature of justification. So to break this down a a little bit more specifically, how can God declare us righteous if we're not actually righteous? And And that is the sticking point with Rome. That is what they would argue against the, the Protestant um, uh, doctrine of justification, they would say, that their argument against it is, that is legal fiction. You have a, 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 a doctrine of legal fiction. God is declaring something that's not actually true. Is why they reject it. Because you still sin. Because there's so much unrighteousness left in you. That can't be true, they say. 
you actually have to be righteous in order to be declared righteous. That's why the heart of the debate really comes down to imputation. It was counted to him as righteous. God is the one doing the action of this verb, not Abraham. God is counting and reckoning and crediting Abraham as righteous. And this is because Jesus Christ in our place. It is his obedience. It is his blood that is credited to us so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see unrighteous Nathan White. He sees the perfect obedience of His Son. Because we are united to Him. Because we are one with Him. Because we are covered in His blood. We are cleansed. We are dressed. He has acted for us in our place. For our salvation. And this is received... By faith alone. So, Paul's words go directly against the very core doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And and really to prove this, uh, look again at verse 4 and 5. Look at what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Note the the language here. The specifics of what he says. There is an antithesis. It's as clear as day. Between faith and works. Right? To the one who does not work. You have to stop working in order to be justified. Which doesn't really make sense to us, right? We we want, okay, oh God, you're going to give me this glorious salvation. Well, well, I don't deserve that, so I want to do something to help. I'm going to do what I can to contribute. Well, that's an offense to God because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's, it's, a, it's a stench in His nostrils when we try, even from good intentions, because they're really not good intentions, they're self-loving intentions, to work for our salvation. I heard a preacher say one time, uh, you know, somebody... Somebody comes up to you and, and um, um, they gift you a new home. Like, from the abundance of my goodness, I am going to give you a new home. You need a home, you know, here is, you know, a $400,000 home. And you're so grateful that you say, I really, really want to help with this. You know, and you pull a couple of nickels out of your pocket and you say, here, here, I want to, I, I, I want, I want to contribute to this. That, that's, that's an offense, because a few nickels, you know, and the analogy certainly breaks down, but a few nickels um, don't do anything to offset the costs of a beautiful new home. Mm-hmm. 
To the one who does not work, you have to stop working in order to be justified. If you try to work, you fail. And, and Paul's point is like, look, like an employer, uh, employee-employee relationship. If you do any work, what you're receiving are wages. If you try to work and you receive a blessing from God, it's not a gift anymore. It's what you're owed. If you do the work, you deserve to be paid. That's justice. If you do any work and you get paid, then you can boast of your labors. I've done this and I've done the work. I deserve the wages while this poor fellow over here has not done the work and does not deserve the wages. And this is approaching God on the wrong terms altogether. To the one who does not work. So so again, there's that antithesis between faith and works. Um... But there's another phrase here, perhaps the key word. Believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Um, it should not be missed that He calls Abraham ungodly. Which is like heresy, blasphemy to a Jewish, Jewish audience. But that's the point. That's the necessary conclusion of his argument. Justification by faith means that we are declared and counted righteous before we are actually righteous. It's while we are ungodly that we are counted righteous. And even until the consummation, we are always in some sense simultaneously sinner and saint. So, this forensic nature of justification, putting off works, while we are ungodly, counted, credited, reckoned, given, imputed to us based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. That is foundational to everything else in the Christian life. And that, as we will see in the coming weeks and months, of course, leads directly into the role of the law and the role of good works and the role of obedience, which are necessarily connected, but it become, it's built on that foundation. It's not part of the foundation. Right? Justification and sanctification are distinct, but never separated. It is because we are counted righteous that we are then enabled to then walk in righteousness. But here, why does he bring David in? Let me ask you that. What what does David bring to this argument? Another patriarch. Okay, David speaks of, 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 you know, imputation, justification. 
Well, I want to pose to you that he brings David in um, because of this question right here. What if somebody came to you and said, well, Abraham's faith is his righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is his belief in God that which God calls righteous? Because this is what Rome says in response. It's not the works of the law necessarily, but it's his faith that is counted as righteousness. So the righteousness is still his, according to Rome. And, you know, uh, to be honest, and, and we've covered this in past Sunday school lessons when we've talked about justification, but in Rome's doctrine, faith, they, they, they define faith differently than the Protestant reformers do as well. Um, they include hope and love. Uh, there are good works that are part of faith. And so that's how they, they sneak in good works here. They stay, at this point, faith is Abraham's righteousness, and faith includes good works. And so that's what Paul's really meaning here, according to them. But how would you respond? Is Abraham's faith his righteousness? Chandler? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that, that kind of presupposes our argument. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's the object of our faith that matters. Um, and, but that is our distinction with Rome. Eileen? Yeah. And doesn't look very righteous. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh it goes back to what we um what we just discussed about he justifies the ungodly. David was still ungodly. David still sinned. Um does our faith equal our righteousness. Well, I mean, there's a lot that we could say here. We could, we could talk about um, the fact that God is talking in counted forensic terms. That would be one argument. We can talk about what Eileen just said in the fact that, you know, he justifies the ungodly, so, so Abraham is still ungodly, David is still ungodly. We can talk about what Chandler talked about, that it's the object of our faith that really matters. These are, these are all ways in which, you know, we could, we could go to this. We could talk about the fact that, look, if, if Abraham's faith is what counts him as righteous, then, then again, that's, that's, justification lies within, not without. It, it lies with what Abraham has done rather than what Christ has done. Right? But, but with all that aside, there's a million ways we could, we could tackle this. I think this is why he brings in David. And listen to what he says. Just as David, in verse 4 and 5, 
also speaks of the blessing, the blessing of justification, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Think about what he says here. Being counted as righteous, being counted uh, that righteousness is defined here as lawless deeds are forgiven, sins are covered, and against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Our biggest problem is that our sins are counted against us. Legally. It's the same word. It's the same word that Paul just used to refer to the counting of righteousness. Legally, our problem is that our sins are counted against us. But in Christ, that same word is used for righteousness. And so this is the critical doctrine of imputation right here. This makes it clear that faith is not the righteousness that Paul is speaking of. The problem is having our sins counted against us. What we need is a counting of righteousness, a reckoning of righteousness. And so with that then, I just want to press upon you what saving faith is, how it is forensic, how it is declarative, how it it is with imputed righteousness. This makes all the difference in the world. If our obedience is in any sense included in faith as our righteousness. Our faith is really in ourselves, as Chandler said. It's not in the object of our faith. And if our faith is in ourselves, we've lost the gospel. Um, Let me ask you, how... Can you think of how these things matter in the church today? None of us here, as far as I know, um, are tempted by the Roman Catholic uh, gospel. But is this strictly a Roman versus Protestant matter? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the the Puritan um, error of preparationism. I think it was called, where they, you know, some early American Puritans really believed that you had to go through this time of being prepared 
adequately humbled for your sin and prepared to seek God before you could be justified. And for some, it was a long process. And then in early America, it really moved to experience. You had to have the experience. If you didn't have the experience, then maybe it didn't happen. It probably didn't happen. Um, you know, the, 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 the childhood conversion where uh, a, a young child says, I believe and I love the Lord Jesus Christ and, and is converted was, was, was doubted. Well, that can't happen. The child hasn't gone through enough of an experience. It hasn't gone through enough of humbling. I, I think this puts an end to that. Without a doubt. It is instantaneous. It is a declaration. And it is while we are ungodly. Other ways this is applicable in the church today? Kim? Yeah, I think Psalm 51 would be a good place to go on that. What David uh, says in that sense where he ties in his forgiveness with, with renewed joy and worship and confidence in entering the Lord's presence again um, after his heinous sin. Absolutely. It does change the way we worship. It changes the way we deal with the ups and downs of life and the times that we do fall into sin. And the struggles and the temptations and, and what that means. Does it mean I'm not converted? Well, if you fall and you never give up, maybe it does. But, but for those who even in their sin, even when they fall, are renewed in their repentance and seek the Lord, um, there's, there's great reason for comfort and assurance even in that. Because we know that ultimately our standing with God is not based upon what's in here and what's going on. It's based upon Christ in our place. There are many people even within so-called Protestantism that have adopted a version of the gospel. Um, Federal vision would be one area. It's a Presbyterian offshoot where you can be a child of the covenant, you can be included in the covenant, you can be justified, but the final verdict isn't given to you until the last day. You have to be faithful to the covenant. Um, Which many of us see as Rome renewed. Um, To be fair, I believe that even John Piper... Um, Reformed Baptist 
has fallen into some of this error, I would say, perhaps just in his confusion of language. He says, and he's written before, that, uh, don't smile at me, Chandler, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. He says, and has written before, that we are saved by faith, but we enter heaven on the basis of, or, okay, let me, I gotta be careful. We are justified by faith alone, but faith alone will not, okay, Chandler, can you help, I mean, uh, Cody, faith alone, we are justified by faith alone, but we enter heaven based upon our works. What he's trying to get at is the fact that good works are a necessary part of justification. And, or I should say, a necessary part of the Christian life. And so we, we ought to give him charity in that regard. But he's very confusing because it sounds like, it really sounds like, Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but we have to be faithful to the covenant. We have to be faithful to follow in obedience and if we're to be given the entrance into heaven. And I think he's caused a lot of confusion with this. And we need to be careful of such things. Yes. Yep. I mean, I would say that there's going to be a one-talent guy, a five-talent guy, a one-talent guy. I would imagine it, but as James is kind of goes on that, that there will be some, there should be some fruit. Now, obviously, yeah. if you were saved, you die the next day. I mean, that's, that's one thing, but... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question that pops into my mind when we say that is, how much fruit is enough? Right. How much good works is enough? Yeah. And even as we're teaching, Avery whispered to me, should God not care about our good works? You know? And you know, you go fast forward to Psalm 6, and it clarifies that. So when you have saving faith given to you by God, you now have a new master, and you don't want to follow after him. You now want to do that. Yeah. There's justification and sanctification are connected, but they're distinct. Yeah. So we don't just want to justify them and throw out sanctification. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, if you go to the book of James, good works are are, are the evidence of, of 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 a genuine conversion. And a lack of good works is is an evidence of a false conversion or a false profession. But that's different than saying that good works play a role in us entering heaven. And, and so, in this sense, recapturing the forensic nature of justification and the doctrine of imputation is critical. Uh, because, let, let me tell you, there is never enough fruit if that's, if that's your standard. And you will never have full confidence and assurance and comfort that you will be enter, uh, granted an entrance into God's eternal kingdom at the last day if you're worrying about 
your fruit and your good works playing a role in you walking into the presence of God. Um, so there's a lot of ramifications with that. I had more to say on that, but I have to stop. Um, we have to end right here. And uh, we got through eight verses. Um, if you have questions more, um, feel free to bring them up um, here in the next 10 minutes before we begin worship or during our fellowship lunch. Uh, we'll pick up here next week, though. So let's go ahead and close in prayer.